Tommaso. I'm going to keep you a bit longer this morning. Hope the time is meaningful. Because now we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion by going to the greatest depth. Seeking to make the aspiration that we may be free of suffering and then big emphasis on the causes of suffering. That we may arouse such aspiration with the deepest possible level of insight and really find the fusion of compassion and wisdom. It takes a good deal of insight to see how afflictive desire, craving attachment, leads to such a broad band of suffering. That takes a lot of insight in and of itself. But this morning we attend to this deepest level of suffering, which we don't even experience as suffering, just, just being alive. But it's referring to our fundamental vulnerability to suffering. And it stems from, on one level, really core, is this reifying grasping onto I am, on I and mine. Right? Holding onto, sustaining a sense of I, of there really being a subject, an agent, a person in here, so to speak, on my side, who is already there, who is really present, inherently existent, inherently having my own properties qualities, traits, characteristics, inherently in here. And therefore, from that vantage point, closely holding onto the body and mind as I or mine, then we're vulnerable to all manner of physical and mental suffering. Now the notion that there is, in reality, no autonomous ego, self, person, that exists by its own characteristics, that really has a body and mind. So many people in the modern world, in science, for example, neuroscientists, psychologists, and so forth, many people would go along with that. Good for you, you found that out. Nice, good hunch. Good hunch, you Buddhists. You have very good intuition. We scientists, of course, actually know what we're talking about. But of course, where does that leave us? What's really here from the modern, let's say, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, evolutionary psychology. All right, if you don't really exist as a person, somehow separate from your brain, your body, your mind, who are you really? Well, in other words, what's really here? What's really the agent? In the shamad without a sign, we're probing inwards, inwards trying to see what is our actual experience of being an agent. So now if we turn it over, okay, what do you scientists have to say? Who is the real agent? Who's really doing stuff. Oh, you get it. It's uniform. It's homogenous. I follow the, 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 the mainstream media quite closely. I mean, it's one voice. It's a choir that's singing all the same tune. And it is the brain. It is the brain that's doing everything. You are a brain. If you have any other ideas, you're wrong. Because you are a brain. And that's what's inherently real. Intrinsically real. Absolutely real. The brain is doing everything. And everything you might experience apart from the brain, since of course you don't really have any experience of your brain at all, is illusory, unreal, epiphenomenal, a mere function of that which is really going on. And the only people who really know about what's going on in the brain is not you, because what do you know about your brain? What is your hippocampus doing right now? You know, who knows? 
No, we have to rely upon somebody else. The neuroscientist will tell us what's really going on and who we really are. So when proposing alternative theories, because of course Buddhism doesn't go along with that at all, no school of Buddhism does, is absolutely incompatible. So there's a point here where somebody's right and somebody's wrong, or they're both wrong. But you simply cannot embrace any of the central features of the Buddhist worldview and believe that. So something's wrong here. You can't say, oh, it's all one. Well, it's not one. There's something deeper going on, though. If we move into especially the Mahayana, but it's there implicitly. It's there trickling up from the Pali Canon. It's there. I was just reading about it yesterday in the Mahasunyata Sutta, the great sutta, the great discourse on emptiness in the Pali Canon. I just read it yesterday. Quite interesting. But it's so concise, you'd have to be quite brilliant to draw out the full meaning of the sutta. But then people like Nagarjuna were sufficiently brilliant and drew out this whole vision of the middle way, of the emptiness of all phenomena. Not only the emptiness of there being an autonomous ego that's in charge of the body and mind that exists by its own intrinsic characteristics, but then turning that light on all phenomena. Like suddenly it's gone incandescent 360 degrees. All phenomena without exception are empty of inherent nature. Do not exist prior to and independent of conceptual designation. Now, these are just statements. But the implication of these statements, in other words, my just saying it is not an invitation, oh, now believe it. After all, I did just say it. And Nagarjuna said it too. No, this is something to investigate. But there's a very profound implication. I mean, it's, to say it's revolutionary is just too small a term. The implications of this, of this statement, that no phenomenon, objective or subjective, exists by its own inherent nature, is really there prior to and independent of observation, conceptual designation, has an immediate implication. And that is that there is no absolutely true description of the universe. That is, this is the way it absolutely really is. There is no such description that is valid Valid as saying, this is what's really going on before we started investigating, before we superimposed the grid of our conceptual frameworks, before we conducted measurements. This is what's, and now we will tell you, this is what was already there. This is what is absolutely true. This is the nature of the universe. And by the way, your part of it is you've got a body, and that's absolutely real. And you've got a brain, and that's absolutely in charge. And that's who you really are. Well. Perfection of wisdom teachings, the Madhyamaka middle way teachings say, there is no such theory. Not even the Buddhist. So many of you have encountered the Heart Sutra. With respect to emptiness, from the perspective of emptiness, relative to emptiness, there are no formable truths. Right. Well, that's the fundamental framework of the entire Buddha Dharma. Right? Reality of suffering, source of suffering, cessation. Here's the path. From the perspective of emptiness, there's no suffering. There's no source of suffering, no cessation, and there's no path. There's no path to achieve. There's no fruition to be achieved. There are no skandhas. He's, hoi, 
the whole framework of the Buddha Dhamma is, is being dissolved into emptiness. It's self-reflective. There is no absolute description of the universe, not even the Buddhist one, and that's from the Buddhist perspective. Now, there's a middle way here. Does this mean anything goes? Whatever you believe, yeah, let's just all smoke dope and say, what, what, what's, coming to, what's coming to mind, dude? Oh, I, I want to have a better trip. How about LSD for me? No, I want ecstasy. You know, it's my reality, dude. Okay, I think we just found the two extremes. You got the hippie extreme, and you got the, what should we call it? Reif, the, the extreme of reification, of substantialism, of things the view of the things, or it's called metaphysical realism. Now, there's a real term. Metaphysical realism. It's already absolutely out there. Everything exists already absolutely out there. And the role of science is simply to map on, to get a good representation of what's already there. And the better it represents, the more accurate and complete the science is. Neither that nor that. Neither metaphysical realism nor, what's it called? Subjective relativism. There's, they have elegant terms for these. Subjective relativism. Whatever you think is true, that's your reality. Ah, then we don't need science. Just have an opinion. That's sufficient, because that's my reality. <laughs> it's much cheaper, by the way. Science is quite expensive. So I've encountered very, very smart people, well-motivated people, ethical people, well-informed people within their domain, to whom when I present Buddhist views of consciousness, the substrate consciousness, just for starters, a dimension of consciousness that's not contingent upon the brain. There it is. And not only that this, we have an elegant theory, which in fact we do, but we have 2,500 years of people who have been exper experiencing that, exploring that, fathoming that, experimenting with that. That's a long science, like six times as long as modern science. Uh, and it's not only there, but then there's a deeper dimension, a deeper dimension, dharmakaya, pristine awareness, dharmakaya, mind of the Buddha, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, tathagata garbha, Buddha nature, another dimension of consciousness. And as in the conversation with Gudo, without introducing that, without incorporating that into our vision of reality, then certain things that do happen just have no explanation whatsoever. Right? But it's not just a nice theoretical device, OK, that makes it intelligible. No, this is something that has also been explored for millennia. That's just within the historical era. For millennia, by the great Mahasiddhas of India, by Nagarjuna, and so forth and so on, right through the Dzogchen tradition, the Mahamudra tradition, that also is well exploratory, formulated philosophically, formulated with very elegant theories, such as the Dzogchen theory as Longchen Rapjamba, so incredibly formulated, incredible brilliance there, theoretically. But the most important thing, this is the theoretical formulations of what people have directly experienced. And are they the only ones? Are we now doing some, something that philosophers like to call triumphalism? Triumphalism. This is absolutely pro forma. This is absolutely normal within the scientific community, a triumphalism. After all, we know what's going on. In fact, we alone know what's going on. It's very, very common there. It's absolutely standard. But if a Buddhist suggests that we actually know something, then again, the, point, the fingers very quickly point, ah, you're practicing triumphalism. Well. 
Are the Buddhists the only one over the last 2,500 years? Are the Buddhists the only one, the only contemplative traditions? Or shall we say, are Buddhist contemplatives the only ones to have discovered substrate consciousness? I'm sure that's not true. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. It may be harder than brain science, but it's not that hard. And in my book, Mind in the Balance, I've shown how in the Christian tradition, they have mindfulness of breathing, they have settling the mind in its natural state, and they have shamatha without a sign. And these are not heretics. These are really some of their towering peaks within the Christian contemplative tradition. Going back to the desert fathers, onto the, the great adepts in, on Mount Athos, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, and Western Christianity, the medieval, the medieval late medieval period, going right up to oh, Nicholas of Cusa in the 15th century, but going back as far as the 8th, 9th century. I think there's very strong evidence. They had the methods, and I strongly suspect, since they had the methods, and they had people dedicating 10, 20, 30 years to solitary meditation, why on earth wouldn't they discover it? And I think they did discover it. But then we find also in the Christian tradition, I'm just taking that as one example, read oh, John Scotus Eriugena, 9th century. Read Meister Eckhart. Read Nicholas of Cusa. Do you think they might have had some insight into primordial consciousness? Oh, man, I don't see how you can avoid it. Now, do we find anything similar in the Hindu tradition? Well, wait a minute. They discovered samadhi centuries before the Buddha did. So how could they you know, develop, fathom, de you know, explore such realms of samadhi without realizing substrate consciousness? They don't have to call it the same name. They can call it jiva. They can call it what they like. The Hindus, absolutely yes. How could they not have? If we go to the Vedanta tradition, look at Shankara, look at some of the great writers in the Vedanta tradition, any evidence they might have discovered the substrate, the primordial consciousness? Look, with, look with an open mind. Check out. Then go over to the Kabbalah, which I've looked at superficially, but enough say, whoa, there's something there. Might some of the great adepts in the Kabbalistic tradition, Jewish mysticism, have fathomed, tapped into experientially primordial consciousness? Wow, some pretty intriguing evidence there. Go to Sufi. Go to Sufi. Looks like, whoa, something quite remarkable there. Go over to Taoism. Like, whoa, they were not fishing in the, in the shallow end of the pool. So if these are true, they're not Buddhist truths. We're not trying to prove a Buddhist theory. If these are true, any more than gravity is an English theory. I mean, after all, Isaac, Isaac Newton was an Englishman, right? So is it an English there? Right. Oh, come on, give me a break. It's either true or false. That's it. So when I proposed this Buddhist vision of this, these three dimensions of consciousness to a good friend of mine, very outstanding man, he says, well, such views like reincarnation, after all, these are contrary to all the, all the known laws of nature. They're contrary, these Buddhist, what I've just said. This is contrary to the known laws of nature. And therefore, if you're going to try to persuade the scientific community that your theories here are true, you're going to have to present some incredibly compelling evidence. You're going to have to devise theories that can not only theories and experiments that can not only prove positively your evidence, but also prove that you could be wrong. In other words, they're raising the bar very high. They're raising the bar in a way that they don't raise for themselves at all. It's an absolute double standard. And this is from a scientific community 
And there's no exaggeration here, which has no definition of consciousness. Look for it. The definition of mass, energy, definition of all the elementary particles, and so many things in biology, chemistry, physics, and so forth. It's, it's rich with very precise definitions. There is no consensual definition of consciousness anywhere in the scientific domain. A lot of opinions, that's it. There's no way of measuring consciousness. Not in anything. Not in, in a developing human fetus. Not in primitive organisms. I mean, how, how complex does a living organism need to be before it comes conscious? Have no way of measuring it. They don't even know how to ask the question because they can't measure consciousness, so they have no way of knowing when it comes into existence. They don't know what causes consciousness. They don't know how consciousness or states of mind influence the body, like the placebo effect. How can your beliefs, expectations, faith, desire, how can that influence your body, your brain, and very specific mechanisms in the body guided by your belief and expectation as you take a little sugar tablet and lo and behold, what you think will happen does happen. They have no explanation for that at all, and they acknowledge it. These, on the whole, are very honest people, people of integrity and intelligence. So I hope there's no sense of kind of dismissing them, or aren't they stupid? Not at all. Not at all. But there's no, don't have any, not even any theory. And there's no theory also in terms of how, here's the fundamental assumption, of course, that all states of consciousness, all known states of consciousness, emerge from the brain. They're functions or epiphenomena or emergent properties of the brain. But how is it, since we don't have any mind molecules or mind cells, some special kind of cell or chemicals or electricity inside the brain that you don't find elsewhere, like in a chemistry lab? All of the chemicals and electricity you find in the brain, you can find in any well-stocked chemistry lab, apothecary, and so forth. So what is it about these, of course, immensely complex configurations of chemicals and electricity in the brain that enables them to produce emotions and dreams and hopes and fears and states of consciousness? What is it? And they don't have a clue. But it's not only that they don't have a clue, but for the last century, since introspection took a nosedive, crashed and burned within the scientific community, and the scientific study of the mind has been absolutely in the thralls of behavioral studies and neuroscientific studies, there's actually been no progress at all. I mean, I think you have a really tough road to hold. If you still don't have a definition, no way of measuring, et cetera, et cetera, how can you say there's progress over 100 years from 1910, when behavioral psychology started, to now? There's no, there's no progress. What you do have is like a, a, a room of people talking about consciousness, but the room is filled with smoke, as if they've been sitting in the room for 100 years smoking cigars. And it's filled, saturated, so you can hardly breathe. And it's filled with the smoke of opinion, with illusions of knowledge. And if you try to come in from outside and say, you know, we have another idea. We have other methodologies, not only bright ideas, but you know, we have ways to actually explore, to fathom, to discover the substrate consciousness, discover a deeper dimension of consciousness. It just sounds like opinion. So when my friend and colleague said, all these Buddhist theories lie contrary to the laws of nature as we know them, One ask, which laws of nature are you referring to? At what phase of history? Time of Galileo? Newton? Darwin? And I can answer the question. The laws of physics in 1900. 
just before Max Planck started the second revolution in modern physics, second revolution in physics, namely modern physics, quantum mechanics. To become a psychology, to get a PhD, highest degree, in psychology or neuroscience or philosophy of mind, there's no requirement and almost no time to study 20th century physics. All the physics you learn is going to be 19th century physics, and it won't be much, just enough. But it's basically, it's 19th century physics. Now, I've got a great quote here. This is from one of the most eminent, distinguished, brilliant physicists of the late 19th century, Lord Kelvin, formidable man. And he said in the year 1900, I should have brought my glasses. <laughs> there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more, is more and precise measurement. It was months later, if not, I don't know, I don't know the month that he said that. It was 1900, though. It was in the same year that the second revolution in physics began. 1900, Max Planck came out with the notion of quantum. Five, five, five years later, Albert Einstein came up with the theory of special theory of relativity. About, what was it, eight or 10 years later, 1915, I think it was, Einstein came up with the general theory of relativity. In the meantime, quantum mechanics through, oh, through Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and so forth, is shaking the foundations of modern physics. What is coming out of that, especially from quantum mechanics, is the nature of the act of measurement and the role of the observer, or in the words of one of the greatest theoretical physicists of the latter half of the 20th century, John Wheeler, the role of the observer participant. It shakes the very fabric of the scientific worldview altogether. And it's a whole dimension of physics for which the cognitive scientific community is, seems to be entirely oblivious as if whatever they came up with, not relevant to us, because we're studying something real, and that is the brain, which is large and gushy, and therefore anything quantum mechanics has to say has to be irrelevant. Let us just assume that. <laughs> as you blow more smoke of opinion into the room. John Wheeler, again, Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, eminent eminent theoretical physicist, renowned, together with Richard Feynman, probably the two greatest American physicists, theoretical physicists in the latter part of the 20th century. He has argued that by applying the principles of quantum mechanics to the whole cosmos, what comes out of that is that matter and energy are not fundamental to reality, contrary to the beliefs of 19th century physics, upon which is based all of modern cognitive science. The brain, the brain mechanisms, the underlying mechanisms of the brain. It's absolutely 19th century mechanistic materialism. 19th century, horse and buggy is how you got to your physics lab. John Wheeler says, no, it's not true. What is fundamental is information. This is primary, information, the flow of information. The whole universe should be seen as an information processing system. And out of information, then we derive the, con the constructs, the categories of matter and energy, space and time. But all that we know about matter, mass, energy, space, and time comes from information that we glean from measurement. Fun information is fundamental. But then there's the catch. 
there is no such thing as inherently existent information that exists by its own nature independently of context. There is no such thing as information without somebody being informed, but to be informed you have to be conscious. There is no such thing as information unless there's something about which you are informed. Otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's a null set. It's zero information. But there is nothing about which you're informed unless there is information. How do you get to it? Unless you have information. But now there's no one who is informed unless you're being informed. So there is no one who is, there is no subjective consciousness that is informed without being informed about something. So what we see here is pratita samudbada, coming straight from physics. And that is the mutual interdependence of that about which you are being informed, namely the universe, the process of information, the information itself, and then one who is informed. But this whole system collapses if you take out any one piece. That is, take out any one of those three and the other two vanish immediately. They are mutually interdependent. In other words, everything in the objective physical world is empty. If you take it out of, out of relationship, if you make it unrelated to the one who is informed and the act of being informed, it's all empty. Now Stephen Hawking, another rather well-known name, I don't think he writes New Age Physics. He's holding Isaac Newton's endowed chair at Cambridge. I think that's probably a sign that he must be a man of substance, or maybe I should say no substance. He's taken the same principle from John Wheeler. And this is Stephen Hawking in a, in a paper co-written uh, co and published in one of the, the finest peer-reviewed scientific journals in the world. And he said, there is no absolutely true history of the universe. There's no way that it absolutely was. The Big Bang, the 13.7 billion year old history of the universe, and our whole theory, theoretical formulations about what happened at the beginning and what's happened since then. There is no absolutely correct description. It didn't already absolutely happen. Nothing already absolutely happened. Everything that happens, we know, we know about by way of information. But when do we glean the information? In the present. You never get any information about the past except for by making measurements in the present. That's a universally true statement. But now, what type of measurements will you make and what kind of questions are you posing? You're choosing that. Reality doesn't choose it for you. And here's the catch. Prior to making the measurement, all that's there is a probability function, a world of possibility. That's not only for the future. That's for the past. This is straight quantum mechanics. This is not airy-fairy something that some guys you know, took three tabs of LSD and came up with. This is Stephen Hawking that the past itself exists in a superposition state as a realm of possibility, make a measurement of the kind that you choose to make with a question that you choose to pose, and you get information. And based on that information, you come up with a story, a true story about the history of the universe, a true story relative to the system of measurement and the questions you are posing. It's a true story relative to that. It's not an absolutely true story. It's one of many stories. Set up another system of measurement and another set of questions, and you'll come up with another true story. And that, too, will be true relative to that mode of inquiry. How many? In principle, infinite. No story is absolutely true. Not the Buddhist story, 
Not the story that you read in any modern cosmology text. Not the story that you read in any evolutionary biology text. Uh-oh. No story is absolutely true. Every story arises independent upon the questions you're posing, the measurements you're making, the conceptual framework in which you couch it. That's Stephen Hawking. And of course, once again, the role of the observer, the role of the person making the measurements, the role of the person choosing the questions to ask, and then formulating, making sense of the information. Making sense of the information, because the information is data, right? But then coming up with a story, an account, a theory. A, a theory means a view, theoria, going back to the Greek. It's a view, a way of viewing reality based upon the information you've gleaned, based upon the question you've posed, based upon the types of observations and experiments you've done. So these breathtaking theories by some of the most formidable physicists, and this is not my opinion. I mean, it's my opinion, but I'm just joining the crowd. John Wheeler, you know, Stephen Hawking, these, who's more formidable? And yet, for the rest of the scientific community, those who are even aware of these theories, and I don't think most people in the cognitive sciences even know they're there, I know the response. I've, I've, I've read some of the responses. Interesting theory. Seems highly subjective. Highly subjective. Who knows? Is any, I mean, you're a smart guy. John Wheeler, kudos to you. Stephen Hawking, give it up. But who knows? After all, where's your empirical evidence? And that is a problem. What really strikes me here is as they are moving from a material-centric vision of reality, that everything fundamentally boils down to matter as being at the very heart, the core of the entire universe, from an immaterial-centric to what I call an empirical-centric, as an experience, experience being information. I mean, what is experience other than getting information? right? So I call it empirical-centric. They are really suggesting a shift from a material-centric vision of reality. Everything boils down to something that is mindless, external, physical, the material, to empirical-centric, such that Anton Seilinger, now one again, once again, perhaps the greatest experimental physicist living today, working in the foundations of quantum mechanics, he states, we know nothing about the objective universe whatsoever as it exists independently of our measurements. And therefore, epistemology and ontology have to be completely merged. Because to talk about what's out there independent of your way of knowing it is not even false. It doesn't rise to the level of being incomplete. It doesn't make any sense. Because whatever you should say about what exists out there independent of measurement can't even be tested. So why are you even talking? Stop talking. Because what you're saying makes no sense. This is Anton Seilinger. Close quote. I have all the quotes in these, in these books. Mind and the Balance, Meditations of Buddhist Skeptic. So when we speak of the what is and is not compatible with the laws of nature as we know them, we, the scientific community, frankly, knows almost nothing about the nature of consciousness. Can't define it, can't measure it, don't know what causes it, don't know how influences matter, don't know how matter influences it. I mean, isn't that a pretty complete set of ignorance? You should have a great big book of empty pages on the scientific understanding of consciousness. I don't think I'm really exaggerating. If you can't even define it, really, how far have you gotten? If you can't even measure it, how far have you gotten? If you don't know what really causes it, how far have you gotten? 
If you don't know what it does, how have you gotten? If you don't know how the physical impinges upon consciousness, how far have you gotten? Isn't that a complete set of we don't know at all? But we certainly do have a lot of opinions. Would you like some more smoke? So what this really strikes me, the, the, the parallel, is medieval scholasticism. The scholasticism in the, oh, let's say the 15th century. And I have to say again, it was brilliant. If we look at the writings of Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest geniuses that ever lived, it was incredibly brilliant. His fusion of Aristotelian science and philosophy with biblical theology into this quite seamless whole, it was a staggering act of brilliance, so much so that it dominated European thought for, what, two and a half centuries. And those people in the 15th century, the medieval scholastics, they thought exactly Lord Kelvin's thought, that the laws of nature that God, in his infinite wisdom, superimposed upon the reality that he created, we know them. We already know them. Our knowledge of reality is essentially complete. All that we need to do is have, make finer and more precise research within our framework, within the Bible, biblical tradition, Aristotle, the ancient Greeks, and so forth. But what we have is essentially complete. And that is our knowledge of the planet also is essentially complete. I mean, hardly anybody seriously doubted that. They thought it, they thought it was round, but rather small. And they pretty much knew the lay of the land. They, I mean, everything important they had already discovered. That was in, let's say, 1450. Now, in the latter part of the 15th century, by the time you get to Christopher Columbus, 1492, and there's another parallel here, that in fact the new world, had all, the new world, North America, the new world, from our perspective, European perspective, had already been discovered. Leif Erikson, I just checked it out. Leif Erikson discovered Newfoundland, which that counts. If Christopher Columbus can discover an island in the Caribbean Sea and say he's discovered the new world, okay, well then Leif Erikson having discovered Newfoundland and actually established a little community there, then that counts. And of course, we're talking about Europeans. We're not making any reference to the fact that there actually were a few hundred million people living in North and South America already. But again, this massively Eurocentric view of reality that if we've not discovered it, nobody's discovered it. Well, around 1,000 years ago, Leif Erikson, who is from good Norwegian stock, but lived in Iceland, and then went out to Greenland, established a community there, and then went out from there to Newfoundland and established a community there, discovering the new world. What he didn't do, though, is leave behind a lineage. That community didn't flourish. It didn't prosper. They didn't start having a lot of trade going back between Iceland or Norway or anything else with the community in Newfoundland. And then it died out. So the discovery was made, but the lineage was not established. And so it was forgotten. So we have these medieval scholastics in the 15th century that still think they've got a complete vision of the world, where even amongst themselves, Europeans, at least one, had already discovered, you're wrong, you know? But he was forgotten. So it took Christopher Columbus raising significant funds for his three little boats setting off, well-funded by the government, Spain, and discovered, but then that left, gave rise to a lineage. There are gold in them, there are hills. There's a lot of profit to be made here, and also we can convert the natives. 
So let's make money and convert people, because we actually, of course, have the one true vision of reality. And so medieval scholasticism got really gut-punched by Galileo, because it shouldn't have been there. You know that little bit of land of North America, South America? That shouldn't have been there. Unfortunately, it was. It was a big nuisance. I mean, it should have been just a nice smooth sail to India, because that's what Columbus was really looking for, because India was quite close. And that's why Native Americans are called Indians, right? Because they should have been, except that this little landmass got in the way. So basically, North and South America were just kind of an obstacle to get to India to open up the spice route. But he started a lineage. And that's why now, from then on, then we have colonies, the English, the French, and so, and, and so forth, started discovering the New World with all of its native population already there. So in Western European civilization, I'm about to wrap up, have there been, has there been anybody over the last 2,000 years from European stock, after all, if we're going to be Euro Eurocentric, let's be homogenous about it, who's already discovered the substrate consciousness and primordial consciousness? Anybody there? Or is that just an Asian thing? Check for yourself. The documents are there. I've, I've picked out really some core issues, themes, writings, practices, insights in mind and the balance. I've drawn my conclusion. I think they did. But they didn't leave a lineage. The Christians, the Christian contemplatives, they didn't leave a lineage. Where do you find con con Christian contemplative hermitages right now where people are going into three-year shamatha retreats? two-year shamatha retreats, 10-year, 20-year Dzogchen retreats within their own system. The methods are there. You can see it. But the lineage has vanished. Still a few meditation teachers. God bless them. But the science isn't there. The lineage isn't there. It was, it was snuffed out with the rise of modern science, the rise of the Protestant Reformation, the decline of contemplative inquiry. Science has taken over. Science is the extroverted mystical quest that Christians were engaging in earlier, to know the mind of God. But rather than knowing the mind of God by looking within, knowing the mind of the creator by looking at creation. That's the agenda of modern science since Galileo. So coming back finally to North and South America, there are a few hundred million people already living there that were just taken over, conquested, conquered, dominated, snuffed out, but not completely happily. And likewise, in this new world of the substrate consciousness, primordial consciousness, that world is well populated by Taoists and Tibetan Buddhists and Indian Buddhists, Sufis and so forth. But we don't count any more than Native Americans counted. They don't count. Well, maybe they should count. Maybe they should count. So as I've led eight-week retreats in the past, the three-month retreats in the Shamatha Project, I'm giving basic people basic training on learning how to sail into the high seas, out of sight, out of, sight of land, isn't it? out of sight of land, out of sight of what is familiar. That's why it's scary. Go into the deep sea. Get to the point 
where now if you travel any farther from, let's, let's say, from Europe, you travel any farther west, if you travel any farther west starting now, you will not have enough provisions to get home. Are you willing to go west? Are you going to say, I think that's enough, and then scurry home? That took a lot of guts. That took an awful lot of guts to go beyond that point of, now there's no going home. Unless you find what you're looking for, there is no going home because you're going to starve to death. Unless you can eat salt water and get enough fish, you're dead. That took some financial funding, but it took people of bold spirit, vision, confidence, willing to undergo great difficulties. So when I've led three-month retreats, two-month retreats over the last five years, we have this basic training. Here's your basic core training in learning how to sail. And then people like Alma and many others over the last five years, they set, they, then they set out on the high seas, one per, one per boat, two, three, four per boat maximum, but most of them one per boat with their little sail. Good luck, send me an email. As they set out in their little dinghy with a sail. What would you say, Alma, is that tough? Yeah, she nodded, yeah, it's tough. One person, one little dinghy, discover the new world, achieve shamatha, discover primordial consciousness. It's tough. It's cheap, but it's tough, really tough. That's not how, and that's not how Galileo, that's not how, what was his name? Galileo, no, not Galileo, Columbus. That's not how, he didn't set off in a dinghy. He didn't say, queen, I'll, I'll find it for you. Give me a dinghy, give me a sail, and give me a good pair of rows, because I'm really macho. You know, I'll just row myself there. He wasn't that courageous. He wasn't that stupid. He said, no, give me you know, quite a bit of cash and three boats and a well-stocked well boats and give me the crew, and then I'll come back and I'll give you something of great value. But of course, I got no guarantee. We all may just die. Right. But that's what it took. It took more than a Leif Erikson. It took Columbus. Three boats, well-crewed, well-stocked, lots of guts, and knowing how to sail, they made the discovery, they came back, and that started a lineage. So, you know, and I'm talking, all roads lead to contemplative observatories. I'll, talk, I'll talk, start talking about brownies, and it's going to lead to contemplative observatories. I'll talk about shoe sizes, and if I go deep enough, it's going to come back to contemplative observatories. I'm absolutely possessed. So you know you're dealing with kind of a fanatic. But you knew that already, so, you know. It's full disclosure. But there is a new world there, and it's well populated. It's been populated for centuries, and not only by Buddhists, but the modern scientific community, which is so dominating by way of the media and so forth, so dominating, no, we have the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us, no God. And moreover, our laws of nature are complete, or complete enough that we know that whatever you say is irrelevant because you're living in a pre-scientific community. And my answer is, you're living in a pre-contemplative community. The modern world is pre-contemplative. We haven't gotten there yet. We haven't set out with our three sailing vessels to explore the new world of the substrate consciousness and primordial consciousness. I told you I'd keep you here longer. I did. So let's meditate for a short time on compassion. Compassion that we may be free of the innate suffering that fundamentally lies at the root, excuse me, innate suffering that is rooted in delusion or suffering that, excuse me, 
that we may be free of suffering, this deepest dimension of suffering that stems from innate ignorance and delusion, that which we were born with, we did not acquire through education and so forth. But in order to penetrate through to that dimension of ignorance and delusion, you first, have to, first of all have to blow away the ignorance and delusion that is acquired. And the ignorance and delusion that's been being promoted, unfortunately in the name of science, whereas it's not science at all, I have only admiration and respect for scientific fact. As you may have noted now, I don't have much admiration or respect for the unquestioned assumptions and metaphysical beliefs of scientific materialism. They're getting in the way of scientific inquiry, let alone contemplative inquiry. And so we need to blow away, blow away the smoke of opinion of untested, uncorroborated, not validated metaphysical beliefs about the physical nature of the entire nature of reality. Blow that one away. And now we can get down to core innate ignorance and delusion. And that we can't blame anybody on, because we are born with it. Let's meditate. So short and to the point. Now let your mind unwind and your body unwind. Your breathing, your respiration come in subtle in its natural rhythm, unforced and unconstrained, as you settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And then as we, as we venture into the meditative cultivation of compassion relative to this deepest dimension of suffering, our fundamental existential vulnerability to suffering, which according to Buddhist contemplative discoveries does not, unfortunately, cease at death. No free lunch. no effortless release from suffering and its causes. It takes more than just dying. It takes wisdom. It takes insight. Discovery into who we are and the nature of reality as a whole. 
and exploring dimension upon dimension of consciousness. With no further words from my side, I've spoken more than enough. With each in-breath, draw in the darkness of delusion, of ignorance, and the resultant suffering. From all the world, with each in-breath, imagine the darkness of ignorance and delusion converging in upon this incandescent orb of light at your heart, symbolizing the deepest dimension of your own awareness. With each in-breath, arousing the yearning, may we all be free of suffering and its causes, all the way up, all the way down. With each in-breath, imagine us becoming free.
know, release all appearances and all aspirations for a moment. Let your awareness come to rest in its own nature, holding its own ground, resting in the awareness of awareness. Let's bring the session to a close. Hola, so. I heard that somebody called me a fanatic, so I didn't need to defend, my, defend myself. I'm not a fanatic in the sense of believing Buddhism is the only way. I don't believe that. But I am a fanatic in my, frankly, I must admit, impatience with illusions of knowledge that are presented as the real thing. It drives me up the wall. And I am a fanatic in really wanting to know reality as it is. Quite fanatic. So there, on those grounds, Your Honor, I plead guilty. Enjoy your day. See you a bit later.